Well, this is the final Sunday in this series that we've called The Story. It's our final series in this story. If you remember, we started all the way back in, in the beginning of the year in January. We started in the book of Genesis, and we started to walk through it. I wanted to remind you, though, that maybe you've seen it, that as we walk through this story, all the way through God's Word, and it's an overview. So if in the end here you're like, man, I really know God's Word right now, probably you know God's Word better than you did it. But there's so much more to dig into. But I want to remind you that there has been this, uh, this upper story that's been going on, who God is how he loves uh, his creation, and how he works as a divine being. But then there's this lower story as well that involves you and I, how we live our lives, and then how we allow God to, to, to connect with us, and how we allow God to love us, and then how do we, in return, love him back. And so these two stories that are going on, and we've seen how often these stories, they intersect with this goal that these stories would be one on top of each other. And so I'm hoping that over the course of the year, you've taken the time to really get into God's Word more and to spend time looking at Scripture and starting to understand how this lower story, your story, connects with God's upper story. And so this week we're talking about this final uh, series. It's really called The End of Time. And it's this topic of in times. In fact, if you take any youth group in America, and they actually did this, this survey, and you ask, what's the first thing you would like me to teach on? And kids often say, well, sex. <laughs> so youth bachelors will teach on that often. What's another one you'd like me to teach on? Revelation. In times. What's going to happen at the end? So number two, it happens quite a bit. Of course, number three, maybe you've known. Uh, what's the third thing you'd like us to talk about? Will there be sex in the end times? So, um, they don't usually teach on that one in the youth ministry world, but uh, true story, true story. But we're going to look at this end times thing. And whenever we start talking about the end times, people get pretty excited about the book of Revelation, about what's going to happen in the end. In fact, in our world today, if you kind of really keep track of world events, and you really get into the book of Revelation, maybe into some Ezekiel and those type of books, then it might be easy for you to start even always drawing connection. Reading news and wait a second, that sounds like what I just read here in the book of Revelation. And you start to draw these connections in world events with what you're reading in Scripture, thinking how these things all line up. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it's a testament to us really being intrigued with the book of Revelation and being intrigued with end times. And so I want to talk this morning, though, not necessarily about walking through a systematic of Revelation, because it would really be impossible to do in one Sunday. But I want, to, I want to walk through what I think the real key and overview thing is that intrigues us. Really the intriguing factor of not just how it's all going to play out is when it is all said and done, and all these events happen either the way I'm thinking or another way, but when all these end times things play out, what is it going to be like then? What is heaven? What is eternity? What's the end game? And what does it really look like? You see, for, for many, many years in American Christianity, well, really 150 years or so, the main emphasis in preaching and sharing of God's word was heaven and hell. The main emphasis to ask people the question, you know, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Where would you end up? Where would your eternity be? 
saying phrases of, of being saved from the coming wrath or from the fires of hell. And so that was the dominant message, really, all the way up to about the 1960s. And in the 1960s, there were some church planters who started to get, you know, called innovative, and they started to, to plant churches that looked very different than other churches. And one of the differences, one of the tweaks, was in the message they were sharing was not just about heaven or hell, but they started to share about this daily life and about what life would look like and how we can get the most out of life. And like anything, sometimes we swing the pendulum another way and we can get to the point where the dominant message is this life and how Jesus and God works with us in this life and we forget about heaven or hell or the eternity and what does it look like. In fact, I would say the state of the American or the American contemporary church has probably swung to the point where we almost get a little fearful sometimes in talking about the eternity, certainly talking about hell, because we're nervous. Oh, well, will people hear that and go like, oh, well, I don't have anything to do with that, and then move on to another church. And whereas it's very significant that we talk about how Jesus invades our life right now and how we can live every single day really with better life, the book of John tells us, by living in Christ, there is something still, whether you talk about it much or not, incredibly intriguing about what does the eternity look like? What does heaven look like? What will it be like when I'm there? What will I experience? Just uh, about two years ago, a book came out called Heaven is for Real. Have you heard that book? A little yellow book. You can probably read it in a brief setting. And it absolutely swept the nation. In a culture that is more interested in talking about the, the daily Jesus than eternity, that book swept us. And we were captivated by it. So much so that a movie is now in production about that book and about the themes of that book. Because we're intrigued. What will it be like? Well, for most of us, if we were honest, we'd say, I don't really know what it's going to be like. I have this glimpse of what the scripture says and this understanding, but pulling all those things together, I really don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Here's what the, the writer in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. Paul is talking about this kingdom of heaven and this connection with God that we will face in the eternity we have the opportunity. But I think on earth, we have people that look at heaven two different ways. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The first group, I believe we, we believe that heaven is actually less than earth. Do you remember the greater than, less than symbols in math class? You know, they go part of one way or the other way. Yeah, well, that's what we got on the screen. And many of us actually believe that the earth is actually greater than heaven. Now, heaven forbid that, um, well, that was my little joke for you. Something like that. Hey, thank you. Um, <laughs> heaven forbid we actually think, though, or we actually ever verbalize that we think earth is greater than heaven. I mean, that'd be a major Christian no-no, right? To ever actually verbalize that. But take a look at our lives. Take a look at how we interact with things. Take a look at what is our priority in life. And our lives will also often speak to the fact that we actually think earth is greater than heaven. So let's look at a couple of things. If we really believe this, then here's a couple of things 
that, uh, that they just hand in hand they go with these things. Number one, if you think that earth is greater than heaven, if you live that way, guess what? You won't share your faith in Jesus with other people. Won't happen. Neighbors, friends, family, you won't share your faith with Jesus with other people if you have this feeling that earth, my life, my daily life, my schedule that I'm caught up in, my kids' activities, my job, all these things are greater than the eternity, then we often get caught up and we never share. This week, I sent out a text to 10 different people, and it just said this, got a question for you. Why do you share Jesus with other people? That, that's all the text says. One person, I, I, I appreciate it, they were honest, they said, I don't, and that was, that was it on the text. Um, but I got some very intriguing, interesting uh, responses there. Two of them I want to read to you this morning. This is one. I share Jesus with hopes that they might be saved from eternal separation from God. You see, this person, when they, when they think about this thing about sharing Jesus, they are thinking there is an eternity, a real eternity, and that they have this job and this role to play a part in sharing that with other people. So as he says, and this person says, to avoid an eternal separation from God. Here's another one I like this. Because that's the only reason to still be on earth after you have entered into a relationship with him. I mean, this person finally saying, look, it's really important that we share Jesus with other people because they have an eternal destination they might be still figuring out in their life. This person said, look, it's the only reason that I'm still here after knowing Jesus is to share Jesus with other people. Remember a week ago we said to know him and make him known were key themes. You see, when we see heaven, we see the eternity of being with God as more significant than even our time on earth, then guess what? To know him and make him known become very, very important. To share Jesus and to talk with Jesus about other people becomes incredibly important. Now last week I told you, and I decided this week to look a little bit more, that if you want to go on YouTube and you just want to Google, or not Google, but put in the search of YouTube, if you want to search just pastor hate sermons, go ahead and do it and see what you come up with. I mean, I'm appalled sometimes as somebody who is in the clergy field to know that those are like other clergy. Those are other pastors when I listen to some of the messages. So we're never calling you to go out and just spew hate on people. But when we understand that the eternity with God is more significant than our time on earth, then we have to get out and share the word. We have to verbalize the word. We have to live out the word. We have to tell people, friends, family, neighbors, about this Jesus. Because it's that significant, not only to us, but it's that significant to them and their eternity. Now, I remember I was back in eighth grade. I, I didn't even know the Lord yet. But we watched this video. And, and I, as I told you before, um, for the dominant amount of time, heaven and hell was the key. It really was the key message. And then daily life started to be a message. Well, somewhere around the late 70s, early 80s, uh, really the Christian film industry was, was trying to re-enter this heaven and hell theme. And you saw a lot of these prophecy type of movies that came out. VHS, of course, at the time, these, these type of movies. Are, in fact, if you go into a lot of uh, uh, church libraries these days, you know, just look to the VHS section and you probably see Several of these movies. I watched one of these movies when I was in the eighth grade, and a movie about a kid who uh, was sitting in a car all alone, and you learned that it was after a car wreck, and the friends that were in the car were no longer in the car 
with him because he went to heaven and they did not. And the whole dialogue now was, why don't you and Jim? Why did I ever take the time to speak with them? And on one hand, the, maybe the shock value for an eighth grader is not something that I, the style I choose so much. But the message really hit home and was real. That there's this great responsibility I have to share with, with others about Jesus for their eternity. But I also get the joy to share with them about how their life can be different. I can also share with the addict how a life with Jesus, free of addiction, is way, way better than what you had before. Or I can share with a married couple struggling. Look, uh, a life where both husband and wife really surrender to God and start tracking His direction, they just experience better marriage than if they keep working it on their own. It's this great package of sharing Jesus. There's this phrase that I came across this week, and I put it in your notes this morning. It says, the only thing you can take with you to heaven is other people. Nothing else can you take with you, but other people you can. Now, I realize for some of you, this is the scariest thing ever, right? The scariest thing ever is to share your faith with somebody else. Maybe get out of public speaking. It might be right up there. But sharing your faith is a scary, scary thing. I sometimes like we have these preconceived ideas of what the other person is already thinking and, all, and how they're already going to respond. But can I let you know, some from experience and some from study, the statistics are actually in your favor when you're being invited. The statistics of people saying yes and wanting to hear a little bit more are in your favor. There's a, a little video I came across that I wanted to share with you so you get a little bit uh, more idea about it. So take a look at this. Yes, you can. It's just you. You can invite her. Just you. That's the worst thing to have. Hey, Roger. Hey, do you want to go to church with me and my family this Christmas? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
accurate than you actually think um, that it's in your favor. So I would encourage you, this is the easiest time of year to invite somebody to church. you got about five weeks in a row in the Christmas time where the door is wide open. So I encourage you, invite them. Invite them here. Uh, let's introduce them to some folks here. Take them out to lunch afterwards and spend some time and be great. Let's look at the second one here. If you believe that earth is greater than heaven, then you're going to place unrealistic expectations on this earth. You know, because you're finding everything you can ever need right here on this earth. And that's really not what the Bible says. Take a look at this quote. Even if we manage to escape from some of the bigger tragedies of life, which few of us do, life rarely matches our expectations. Every vacation eventually comes to an end. Friends often move away. When we do get a taste of what we really long for, it never lasts. You might call that guy a bit of a pessimist, but some reality is in there, right? And when we keep striving and striving and striving, we never seem to really get there. I remember uh, my pastor sharing in ninth and tenth grade, um, I was at that age where listening to the pastor's whole sermon probably wasn't quite what I was interested in. I was more interested at the time in the Camerer twins that, that were at church as well. But I remember her saying that, her saying, having a sermon about living for the station. You're riding on a train, you get to the next station. And you're trying to break up the monotony of the trip, just thinking about getting to the next station, the next station, the next station. Now, I'd never driven, I'd ridden on a train until um, about 18 or 19. Then I knew exactly what she was talking about. That's how life is sometimes, right? If we can just get to this next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. But that thing never really brings that fullness that we were really after. Now, the stakes get a little higher as adults, and sometimes the problems are a little more real. But the simplicity of living for the next station seems to dictate often. Because we put these unrealistic expectations on this earth. Shri and I, we have uh, this little phrase that we have, and we've actually talked about. We're allowed to use this phrase with one another. Uh, and that is when, when one speaks to another, or one says something about another or whatnot, that we're allowed to say, uh, I don't think I deserve for, for you to treat me that way. Um, that could be a dangerous phrase, you know, to say. Uh, but that's a phrase that we came up with. I don't think I deserve to be treated that way. Uh, really, what we call it is risking the wrath of the other person. Have you ever risked the wrath of somebody? Meaning what you're about to say could blow up in your face. Uh, okay. But that's kind of our phrase. What we're really saying to each other when we say that phrase is, I think you had a false expectation of me. A false expectation of the situation. And that's what we often do on earth. If we believe earth is so much better than the eternity with God, then we place a false expectation on earth. We place a false expectation on things that don't come from God or that have no connection with God. It's amazing that we live in a world that is still incredibly spiritual, even though so many have rejected Jesus Christ. In fact, you can walk on just about any college campus today Young people, 70% from 18 to 22 years old, will step out of the faith. But you can strike up a spiritual conversation on any college campus in America. But if you strike up the conversation about Jesus and going to church, you get something altogether different. See, there is this longing for spiritual. There is this longing for something else. It's something that's greater than us. There's this longing for God, whether they can really identify that or not. Yet so often in our practical life, we keep living like earth is better than that. 
And so you can see there's always this tension, this tension in our life, what we're designed for, the relationship we're designed to connect with, and yet it's never there. C.S. Lewis says this, when I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. It's talking about being made for the spiritual, being made for heaven, this relationship and this connection with God. I learned this this week. I, I knew this. I read some of this stuff, but uh, I, I didn't know it per statistics this till this week. That on Facebook, 71% of personal posts. Now, you may think, well, isn't every personal post? Not necessarily. We're talking about things where it's kind of the I or we or us. It's personal. They put themselves in the post. 71% of personal posts are complaints or negative. 71%. That's pretty mad. I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to run right today and start counting up. I've got to go do some correcting on my start counting, I think. Just to make sure. 71%. The truth is, you become what you dwell on, right? The more you want to dwell on negative or complain, guess what? You're going to just be a complaining, whining, negative person. It's just how it goes, right? And that's why the scripture says something like this in Colossians 3 1 2 2. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, when we focus on heaven, our connection with God, and our eternity with Him as more significant than just what we can gain here on this earth, then our expectations shift entirely. We start to think less about my fulfillment as a human, doing human things, gaining material things, and I start to think in terms of my, my mission on this earth. What am I here for? What, what should I do with my life? I have a, a friend who's 25 years old, and um, I've been trying to share Jesus with him, but I realize he's a young professional. He's got it going on pretty well. I can't find anything in his life that he would think is out of place or wrong or, or missing. And so I'm like, God, how do you want me to share Jesus with person. Right now, it's just hanging out and being a friend uh, to him. But I remember in my own life, somewhere in mid to late 30s, um, you start to start to think, what impact have I really made on this earth? Well, have I done anything of significance for anyone else on this planet? And you start thinking about purpose a bit more. You see, when we start thinking about heaven as more significant than just our earthly material lives, we start to think about purpose and mission. What am I here for? And so my expectations of what somebody else can do for me or what some item or thing can do for me totally changes. Totally changes. And I start thinking more about what can I do for them? How can I serve them? How can I share Christ with them? Well, let's look on. If you flip to the back of your sheet this morning, you know, I should have said at the beginning, if you've got in here and you don't have one of these sheets in your life, what is talking about on the sheet? Um, you can slip up your hand. Richard's still back here. I'd be happy to bring you one if you want to get the back side of it. There will be several things to run in there. So feel free to slip up your hand here. We'll run one out to you. I'm sorry I forgot that at the beginning. I want you to realize this morning that heaven is actually greater than earth. It really is. Our eternity with, heaven, with God is greater than this short stay on earth. And so I want to look a little bit at the book of Revelation, really, chapter 21, as it describes this, as the Bible calls it, this new Jerusalem, or this, this new heaven, this new place that we 
will live. But before we do that, let me explain the book of Revelation just a little bit to you. Really? The book of Revelation is a, a pretty fascinating, interesting book to read. If you've ever seen bread, probably you can stop very quickly after about five or six chapters. And you said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't understand what this is. Alright? That's okay. Because the book is incredibly hard to understand. In fact, I would say this. If you came to somebody and you said, can you explain to me exactly what everything in the book of Revelation means? And they say, certainly I can. Just don't have any more conversation. Turn from them walk away. Because they don't know what they're talking about. Right? It's an incredibly interesting book to try to figure out and understand. And there's just a level of things in there that, that we probably will never have the complete understanding to extend before God and said, what more would you mean? Now, with that said, that does not mean you can't go to commentaries and you can't get interpretation at all. But I want you to remember that there's really four dominant camps of interpretation of the book of Revelation. Four different views, you could say, of this interpretation. In fact, in the Christian world, in the Protestant Christian world, you'll find a little bit of a mixture of these. More some people that kind of fall in one camp, but there's about four dominant views. If you want to write these down, you can, they're not in your notes, it's fine. Um, but number one, there's an idealist view. Idealist view of Revelation. This view, basically, they look at the book of Revelation, the, the 22 chapters, and they say, this is all historical from the Old Testament. Right? So this view, we look at Revelation and say, all that you've heard about end times and it's coming up and that type of thing, this view would say, no, it's already happened. This is a historical view from the Old Testament, from history in the Old Testament. And on top of that, they would say, this is all allegorical as well. Allegory means you don't look at every little thing and try to line up everything to interpret. Like it says, street of gold. You don't say, well, gold means this. Um, that's not how allegory interprets or makes connections by themes or uh, by these large symbols and those type of things. So um, in the book of Revelation, allegory might not be the, the beast is an actual person. But for this view, they would say the beast kind of just symbolizes the evil or sin as we see it throughout history. So you can see allegory fits a little bit different. Now it's often said that the Lord of the Rings books were written as allegory type books. So if you're a believer, and knowing Tolkien, the writer was a believer as well, then you can't necessarily go through every scene in each of those movies or each of those books and say, well, this means this in the Bible, this means this in the Bible. But if you take an overall view, you can see how he weaves Christian themes into uh, his stories. That would be an eyeless view of the book of Revelation. Historical, allegory, nothing specific. Then you have the, the preterist view. And this is also a historical view, looking at the Old Testament, that this happened uh, in there up to the time of the writing. This is all historical. But this would be more of a literal view. So you would actually take like times and empires and kings and those would match up with characters in the book of Revelation. So same type of thought, historical, it happened up till John's writing, but now you're getting more literal where there's a matching type of thing. If this was John Hagee, where you ever watched that on TV, he would have a big chart up on the wall and he would have all the connections with the lines and the dots and the symbols and all this kind of thing. That would be this literal interpretation. Then you have the historist 
view. And that was a little confusing by the name of the story. She would think, oh, this is a history one as well. Well, yes and no. It is a history, but the time that the history starts is different. You see, the time of the history here would be when John was writing it forward. So it would be like a, a, a book that would talk about the end times or the future, but it would start from where John is writing it. So you see the timeline shifts in this view when they start to view this. The timeline shifts. But this view would actually feel like the book of Revelation up till chapter 21 has been somewhat wrapped up. We've already experienced it in history up till now. And they would trace it as well and try to match up these kind of things because everything is kind of symbolic and has some type of connection in a real earthly experience. And so we would find those in history. And then we'd have this final one, which would be a futurist view. And that would basically say the time frame starts from John, when John starts writing it, right? And it goes forward in the future with much of the book of Revelation centering on the end times, things that have yet to happen to us. And so there's four different views. Who's right? Well, that's a little bit tough to figure out. You might take a very evangelical contemporary denomination, such as yourself, right? And they might fall in one camp. And you might take another one that looks just like us. If I took a snapshot of you and does things very similar, and they have a little bit different take or different view. For the most part, we fall into the historicist and futurist camp of these. Most Protestants fall into that interpretation or into that camp there. So that gives you a, a little, a little uh, snap into the book and these varying views of the book. Now, um, I believe very clearly, without a doubt, Revelation chapter 21 speaks about the future. It speaks about when everything's said and done in the end times, what is it going to look like? And where will we be in it? And we fall into that camp very strongly. And so it, it actually works very well for us this morning. When we're talking about saying heaven is greater than our earthly home, I'd like to know what is that heaven going to look like? And if I look at the book of Revelation chapter 21, I get this, this glimpse of what it looks like. So if you would take your Bible, Revelation chapter 21, Let's take, a, let's take a look at this for the next few minutes, and then we'll wrap up. Chapter 21, uh, first thing we find in verse 16 is we find just this, the size. Take a look at it. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide. So you kind of get the long as wide here. He measured the city with a rod and found it was 12,000 satyrs. In length and as wide and as high as it is long. 12,000. You know what that translates into? 1,400 miles. So you've got like in, in a square, 1,400 by 1,400. That's a pretty enormous city. Now I'm sure some of you have visited in Chicago, New York, LA, Atlanta, these type of places. None of them 1,400 miles squares. I mean, this is a huge, huge city that's being described here. Now, here's where, when you're looking at this, some of the interpretations would like to come in and say, what is it exactly 1,400 miles? There, I don't know. I don't know. Um, we want to remember one thing when we're interpreting what's being seen by John. If you were to go over to a tribe in Africa who had never been out of their, their small, uh, maybe mud huts there in and you were to take them, and you were to drop them in the middle of New York City for the first time, and you were to say, describe what you see. 
And they would use, in their own language, which they have, they would write the best way they could what they saw, and then took it back to their folks. They're not going to be using words like skyscraper, um, airplane that was flying over, because they wouldn't have that experience and they wouldn't have that vocab. It's very similar that John, as he's writing and seeing now this celestial kingdom, this heaven, that he might be writing the exact literal thing, or he might be writing in the best language he can what he's seeing there. That one is hard for biblical scholars and interpreters to get their head around exactly what. But we do know one thing, it's massive, right? Huge, huge city here. The walls, we find in verse 17, he measured the wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which, which the angel was using. Um, 144 cubits is about 200 feet thick, and that is huge. We were just at the gym hanging a big sheet uh, on the wall, and we we're trying to drill through the wall. And that wall was about a quarter inch thick of something really hard, and we had a hard time getting through it. That's a quarter inch, 200 feet. I mean, this is an amazing type of, of wall that's around the city. Take a look at, in verse 21 of your Bibles. It says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. So what were the streets like? Paved with gold. You might have heard that phrase before. I mean, that's, that's a pretty costly endeavor right there. And then finally, we find the doors of, and the gates are made of pearls. So we get, now you see the pearly gates. I never knew that uh, early on in my life. I just, I never drew the connection. Pearly meant pearl. Oh, there it is. In book Revelation. Pearls. Um, learned that in college. I thought, oh, great. That's a little label of some of this stuff. So we find this, I mean, this is a city unlike any other city. And this is the new Jerusalem that God has prepared for us to dwell in. And to be with him forever. And I remember in Moreno Valley growing up that we, we lived in one of those kind of track home areas. You know, every home looked just about the same, just the windows were a little different, the doors a little bit different. But it was the same model, just about every home. And there was one lot that was left open. It was about a double lot from our normal size. And somebody came in there, they must have bought that lot, and they started building a house. Now, by the standards of our track homes, this was a really nice house. It didn't really belong in our neighborhood, you know, compared to, I, I couldn't even imagine what they're wanting to build that next to our houses, but they did. Um, and it was this massive house with, you know, pillars and all kinds of crazy stuff that they were building, circle drives. I mean, you would get a circle drive when you've reached it. <laughs> so they had all this going on, right? And they never moved in. <laughs> Never moved in. The house sat there, and they were gone. I have no idea what the story was. Um, you know, I was a kid at the time. Now, as an adult, I don't know. Maybe they didn't get all their financing. Maybe they didn't get it done. Maybe some, I don't know what happened. But to build that kind of home and never move in, it was odd. And, and you see, that's, the Bible is describing to you the home that God has designed for you. The, the city for us to dwell in. And not only that, but he said we need to live with him for eternity. That's, that's pretty good news. That's a pretty good situation there. And yet for many of us, because we view our life on earth as greater than heaven, we never move in. We never take what he has offered to us. But I want you to realize today that this heaven 
that we're talking about is actually greater than what we experience on earth. Here's what Isaiah says, that he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. His punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know what Isaiah is saying? Is by Christ we gain entrance into the city and into heaven as well. You know, this morning, maybe the greatest thing for you to realize is not what does the book of Revelation mean? What does all those crazy passages that are about beasts and eyeballs and things like that mean? And to say, have I ever really understood and grasped onto that Christ died for me and my entrance into this great city that we just read about comes with my faith and my desire to live for Jesus Christ? That's what Isaiah is getting at there. Second thing is, when we realize that heaven's greater than earth, we, we realize we get to experience these renewed relationships in heaven. Here's what Matthew says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. It's like a family reunion time where we all come back together and you get to see those and be reunited. Now, that also raises the question people ask, well, does that mean we'll still be married when we get to heaven or see my husband's wife? Well, the Bible actually says in Matthew 22 that, that we're not married. Nobody's married when they get into heaven. But certainly there's this recognition of people and there's this relationship. We find that the disciples, they recognize Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. Or transfiguration. They recognize them and have this connection with them. And that's a glimpse of what heaven will look like. Then this renewed relationship, a new connection. They had a youth pastor who used to say when you'd ask him a question and he didn't have the answer for it, he would say, I'm not quite sure, but I'm, I'm going to carve out about 10,000 years of God and work through that. Kind of a way of saying it's eternity. It's forever with God. And this connection in being able to see the people that we have lost. Finally, I um, we get to experience perfect peace as well. I don't know, is that something you still look for in your life? Peace? I think so. If we go back to Facebook posts for a second, I believe without anyone actually saying on there, hey, I'm really looking for peace today, it's what so many of our posts are actually saying. When we have these interactions, I think what we're really asking for is peace, satisfaction, fulfillment in our life. Can I tell you this morning that if you're going to live your life like earth is greater than heaven, you're just not going to find it. It's just not going to be there. You can have moments where it's better than other times, but on a fullest level, we're just not going to find it. But when we experience what God has to offer, when we understand that my relationship with Him, my eternity with Him, is going to be better than just this short time on earth, when we start to experience peace, we start to understand there's some stuff I stress about on this earth that I don't even need to stress about or really not that big a deal. Not that big a deal. What's my status on this earth? Am I ever going to rise above lower middle class? It's irrelevant. Does it matter? No, when I look at the kingdom of God, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I, if I say, no, I'm going to sink down even lower in, in, these, in, you know, in these earthly classes. That's okay because that's not my standard anymore. And I find peace is something entirely different. Here's what the Bible says. And, and make sure you hear it, especially the end part. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. That's him with us. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, that's a pretty good deal right there. Look, guys, um, I know you don't like to say you cry. Well, let's face it, you do. He wipes away those tears as well. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on his throne and said, check this out, I am making everything new. Then he'll say, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, John's writing everything down, right? But here was the emphasis saying, write this down. This is what people have to hear. I'm making everything new. People will pack up their homes, their kids, and they'll move 3,000 miles or somewhere away just for a chance of what? A fresh start. Have you ever heard that? Somebody saying, well, I just want a fresh start. They may not even know what job they're going to or what they're going there for. They're just looking for a fresh start. And so to hear this type of good news that God says, look, I'm going to make everything new in your life. You don't have to even load up the new home. I'm going to make all things new. That's some good news that he puts in there. We experience perfect peace. Now, it's true. At the end of the day, heaven is still in front of us. We still have a life to live. There's purpose and meaning and great things that we have to experience here on earth. But here's the greatest thing about what we're talking about. The Bible says when we come to know Jesus, when we connect with him as our Savior, and we start to live a life with him, the Bible actually says we begin to experience this heaven right here on earth. We, get, we begin to experience the kingdom of God right here and right now. And then on the day that we go to be with him, we get the fullness of this kingdom. That we get to be a part of. And so my encouragement, my urging for you this morning, if you've never solidified that, if you've never sealed the deal on that, we've never said, you know, I need to live for Jesus, I need to come into my life, be the Lord of my life, that's where I need to be tracking in my life. Then I would encourage you this morning, why not go ahead and, and take care of that? Why not go ahead and say, Lord, this morning, I need to live for you. I need to make sure of this heaven thing. I want to start experiencing this kingdom of God on earth right here, right now. Some of you, you've done that in your life. Um, you, you've done it many years ago. Maybe some of you, you got the little, you know, youth camp story to tell or whatever the story might be. But you know, you, you've lived your life or you're living your life today. Like, earth is more important than heaven. And then the things on this earth are, are of so much more concern in your life than your purpose in God. And I would encourage you this morning. Reprioritize. It might be time right now to look at your priority list and however far down you have to go. Now, if it's 27 before you find, you know, living for God and His purposes and start to reprioritize this morning and see if you don't experience more peace in your life and more joy in putting His purposes first. Let me pray for you this morning and then as we're doing that, maybe you need to go to God and you need to be spending time talking to Him as I do. Go ahead and need to hear a song. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, though we're incredibly confused as we study the Bible and what all those symbols mean in the book of Revelation, though, though we certainly Lord, don't have it all down as far as what all the interpretations are, Lord, there's something we can say for sure, that there is heaven that is in front of us. And Lord, I know that some have gone to the point where they would just say, well, everybody ends up going to heaven. God, that's just not the story of your word. Your story is still that it's a choice for us to choose you. And that this great heaven, this great city, this great dwelling place with you exists 
You've also said the kingdom of God exists the moment we say yes to you. Surrender our life to you, and you become the Lord of our life. And Lord, I pray that there, if there's anyone, just one in here, that today is ready to say, you know, I, I want to become a Christian. I want to become a follower of Jesus. And that's exactly what I want, the kingdom of God right here, right now, and in, in the assurance of heaven and the eternity. I pray for that person, Lord, that they can surrender right now. Lord, I, I would say probably the greater number out there has already said yes to you at some point in their life. But this morning, their struggle is just in making earth greater than heaven. Making their daily lives and material things greater than the purposes you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray, if that be the person that reprioritizing what could happen even now. Lord, not because I'm up here talking about it, but because you, right where they've said have met them, and you're engaging with them right now already, Lord, and you're speaking to their hearts and talking to them about this. And I pray, Lord, that that person right now could make a commitment towards that re-priority, re-prioritizing in their life. And then would you show each of them blessing and joy and meaning because of it. What kind of an impact can we make, Lord, when we're surrendered to you? I pray we would see it. In your son's name, amen. Mm -hmm. Well, Lord bless you. That's the end of our series. Next week, we're going to start a new series on the Advent season. And if you've never uh, really walked through the Advent, what does it mean? What is it about? We're going to start the next Sunday on December 1st, walking through that for the next four weeks, leading right up uh, to the Christmas season. So we're pretty excited about that. Now, my encouragement over the course of Christmas, like I said earlier, just invite someone, family, friend, uh, someone along with you to church. We'll stuff and this Christmas kind of allows us to do it. So, uh, now's the time if you've got your card. Finish filling that out. In just a minute, our, our ushers are going to come take our app and uh, drop those cards in. If you're new with us, take that to the table. And I guarantee you're happy to get your free gift this morning if you'd like to get people on the first Sunday with us. Now, we're going to just a minute when we take our offering. Remember, we're going to be giving our special offering to uh, our Philippines. It's a Western Relief Fund that goes directly to the Philippines. Uh, for this relief. And so if you really dig deep, dig deep in your generosity. Now the Bible just tells us the Lord will provide back some way, somehow. You don't need to stress and worry about that. So say obedient with your tithes and offering. Give generously of the 90% this morning. Let's really, let's really do an impact this morning from a small church that just loves the Lord and loves to give. So, all right, why don't you stand up with me? And our ushers are going to come through and they'll take our morning offering and we'll go outside.